The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you go to the very middle of the Bible, you'll find Psalms and then hang a little bit of a left. Job is the last book before Psalms. Um, If you didn't get a handout when you came in, maybe stick a hand up and uh, we'll make sure that you get one of those. And uh, I'm going to... I'm going to labor through this. It's going to be, this will be interesting. Um, I started uh, using this new app today like an idiot with no, uh, like, let's mess with it for a little while first because I'm stupid and think I can do everything. And uh, I dumped all my notes not all that long ago this afternoon. So I have scrambled to come up with something, but we're just going to like labor through. So um, if it's bad, I'm going to blame that. Um, and if it's good, we'll blame God. Either way, I'll just step out of the crosshairs somehow, right? It's cheating, I know. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening and studying your word. Lord, may it not be lost on us that this isn't just some intellectual endeavor that we're, we're doing tonight. It's not just something we do while the kids are in the other rooms. Lord, we open this book with the intention and the promise of meeting and interacting with you, the living God. So may we take that posture before your word tonight. May we not be distracted, Lord, by the enemy who would seek to come and prevent us from seeing you, from understanding you, from trusting you and believing in you. And may you provide, Lord, for us exactly what we need to continue and accomplish your purposes, whether it be comfort, conviction, whatever it might be, understanding. God, will you just minister? And and Lord, for that to happen, we need way more than Jeff. God, we need your spirit to move. We need the power of your spirit in conjunction with the utterances and the reading of your word to produce, Lord, your will in our hearts. So we ask, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The book of Job. When my youngest daughter was born, Allie, she's, uh, uh, how old is she now? Nine? Seven? Three? Somewhere in there. Seven? Nine? Nine? (laughs) Let's just go home. (laughs) She's 10, okay? See how fast they grow? She was nine this morning. Anyway, um, when she was born, when my my first daughter was born, it was easy. Um, Everything just went easy. I mean, it was easy for me. Um, It it just, everything seemed to go smooth, especially once the epidural kicked in. Things kind of went well. There were no real complications. The baby never left the room. I got to cut the cord. Hannah went right to mommy's arms. Everything was just kind of festive and celebratory. It was our first child. We didn't think we were going to even be able to have children, so it was all sorts of miracle. Um, And it was just this incredible thing that we got to experience. Um, Allie's birth was as well. It was different, as they all are, right? It was different. Um, But it was really scary when it happened. When Allie came out, they didn't have the same sort of um, joy and celebratory mood in the room as they did when Hannah was born. Um, There was immediate concern. Um, And there was a a cord issue. 
and her color was different. And they didn't deliver the baby and instantly go, hey, do you want to cut the cord? They gave me no choice. They cut it themselves. Like everything was urgent. Everything was quick. No one was talking to us. They were talking to each other a lot. And I knew right away something was wrong, but I didn't know what my wife was able to notice or see or any of that kind of stuff in the moment of it. And so, so I wasn't trying to say anything. I didn't want to freak her out, but I was, I was really scared. And, and they took Allie and they began to just kind of mess with her to try to get her breathing. And she wasn't crying yet, as you know they tend to do right away when they get the thing out of their mouth and all that. Um, all, all that stuff, so like none of that was happening. Um, and the longer that happened, the more scared I got. And as I watched this little baby laying on this table in the room, and they're doing all this stuff to her to try to get her to breathe, and I'm seeing this urgency, and this panic starts to kick in. Like, oh, no, are we going to be one of those stories? You know what I mean? Like, are we going to be one of the, and, and I mean, I'm a pastor at the time. And so I hear about these stories and my experiences in hospitals are always for other people. And now I'm here going, is it going to be me? And I was terrified watching this go down. And the first thing I thought in that moment, pastor or not, preacher of the gospel or not, understander of scripture or not, the first thing that started going through my mind was to beg God for forgiveness of my sins because this is probably my fault. Can't be her fault. She's brand new. And if something bad's happening, what have I done to deserve this? God, if there is anything I did, please do not take this out on her. Let me drop dead now if that's what has to happen. Please don't let it be her. That was my first thought. And I know better than that. I know better than that. But when it comes down, when the 911 call happens, when your 35-year-old wife drops literally, as we've talked about a lot the last couple of weeks, right, drops dead in the hallway of the church, a lot of your theology sometimes can, you, you can be tempted for those things to just sort of go out the window. And a lot of times we all end up defaulting back into this sort of legalistic style of life that believes that this must be my fault. And then the counter of that is when things are going really well, we must be nailing it, right? That's the opposite of it. Well, fortunately, we have the Bible. And the book of Job blows all of that up, but also leaves us with maybe more questions after that than we would have before. We're looking at the book of Job. When you guys came in, you got some information that I kind of gathered for you guys. And um, some of this was from one of my seminary professors when we were working through our uh, Bible survey of the Old Testament. Um, just some, some quick facts for you guys. And it's a great quote just to start out, really. G.K. Chesterton says, The Iliad is great because all of life is a battle. The Odyssey because all of life is a journey. But the book of Job because all of life is a riddle. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, the last few weeks as we've looked at Esther, we've looked at Nehemiah, we've looked at Ezra, if you guys have noticed as we've looked at all of these different books of the Bible, they all sort of end with this, eh, don't they? Like these books all sort of end as if like, I don't really know where we're going right now. We were expecting something a little better. We were expecting some sort of resolution. We were expecting some sort of answer. And they all sort of leave you with this sort of idea that there's something more somewhere, and we just didn't quite get it in this book. And there's some elements of that with the book of Job. You, you have to approach the book of Job understanding from the beginning that there's some things you're just going to have to let go as you read it. 
There's some questions that just aren't fully going to be answered. And I think even some of that is kind of alluded to even some of the poetic nature of the book, as we'll see when we get into it. The author, we don't really know who it is. It's anonymous. The date of the writing, we don't really know for sure when that is. There's arguments all over the book of when it was written from it being the oldest book in the entire Old Testament to where uh, others would say it was written during the time of Solomon. Um, we know the setting of the book. We do have some evidence with regards to the setting of it. Um, there's some internal evidence in the story that suggests it's within the patriarchal age. So think of the days of, for example, Abraham, uh, Jacob, Esau, that sort of time period. Um, and we believe that might be the case because there's no allusion to the people of Israel there's no comment or no um, uh, anything to, to the fact that that nation even existed. There's nothing about the sacrificial system. There's nothing about Mosaic law. There are none of those things even hinted at or alluded to during this time. And part of that too, though, could have to do with the fact that the setting actually is not in Israel. This takes place in the land of Uz, which is far away. It is not a Hebrew book. Uh, Job in the story is not a Jew. He's living in, the, in uh, Arabia in this place called Uz. So, so it's a little bit of a different book, especially from what we've been looking at lately as we've looked at Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and these stories, these, these narratives that give us kind of the grand history um, of the nation of Israel. And then all of a sudden we step into, and this is referred to, you'll get into it a lot more in about two weeks when we hit uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but this is referred to as the wisdom literature, and it steps out of that classic narrative stream that we've been seeing, and it jumps into a completely different story that's going here. And so what's the purpose of that book? Why does God give us the book of Job in the Bible? Some people believe that the book is written to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? And most of the people I would think that hold tight to that argument are people that don't read the whole book of Job. Because you don't really get that answer. At least Job doesn't. And we certainly can't look at Job's specific experience and necessarily apply that to all of us, though we don't really know. What we do know is it is about suffering, or at least it, it takes place within the setting of suffering. But maybe a better way of saying it is it's more about faith. It's more about endurance. It's more about what does the follower of God do as they go through Suffering is a better way of looking at it. The idea of keeping faith in times of trial. But the other thing that's actually not listed on your notes that really should be is as much as anything, this book shows us the absolute sovereignty of God over every sphere of life. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So the outline of the book is rather interesting. A lot of people actually teach that you should only approach the book of Job almost in a setting like what we're doing tonight. Like quick hit, don't hang in there long, because if people get bogged down in the middle, they're going to off themselves. They're going to get so depressed and so discouraged reading all this stuff that your church will vanish. I, I actually do not believe that that's true. And we'll, we'll break into some more of the, the subdivisions within the book that I think have some really interesting things to point out. Um, but a lot of people believe that you should break it down that way. And the reason is, is as you see here, on the bottom of this Facts About Job outline, you can see that there's sort of an outline. The first two chapters of the book, and I would actually argue the first three chapters of the book, um, are a historical narrative. It tells us what happened, and it's written that way, just a historical account. Now, the middle section, which is the longest section of the book by far, chapter 3 through 42, um, in your notes right here, it's going to say that it's poetry, and it is, but it's also still historical narrative. So it's sort of a mix between the two. 
A lot of what you're reading is poetry. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of word pictures. There is a ton of emotion that's going on in it, but it's still being done within the framework of an actual historic narrative. So, so there's actual conversations that are taking place, and there's actual people coming into the scene, but the writing style is a little bit different. And I believe that that's very um, intentional. Because I do think we're supposed to, as we go through this book, we read what happens to this guy, and it's tragic, and it's terrible, and it's heartbreaking, and then it goes into this sort of poetic language because it's trying to evoke emotion from us as we read these things. It's trying to get you to feel for this guy. It's trying to get you to maybe even enter into some of the suffering. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times when I hear stories of tragedy or when I hear of things that, that happen, I can't help but put myself into that scenario and sort of picture myself there. So when, when our dear brother Craig over here, when his wife went down a couple of weeks ago and I'm watching him watch his wife and I'm watching the sobbing and I'm watching the stuff that was going on, I find myself thinking about the same thing. How would I handle this if I was there? And the emotions just come. You know what I'm talking about with some of those things? And so I think this is intentional. Um, those who would say that the Bible um, is only sort of this holy, um, somber, and almost intellectual thing that we learn about God are missing giant portions of Scripture that are written with the absolute intention of invoking emotion. Um, I, I see this argument a lot in worship where people go, we should only do hymns and just sing doctrine and all these things all the time. But if you go and you read the Psalms, so much of the worship that David's doing there is not like this intense doctrine so much as he's talking about what's going on in his heart. Like there's actual emotion there, and emotions are God-given. Now, our, our heart's deceitfully wicked, and we don't see things the way that we should because we live in a fallen world for sure, but those emotions are gifts from God to help us even learn how to navigate life to some degree. And so I do believe that this is written intending us to feel something for this guy. Maybe even wonder how we would handle it as we're going through this, as really the theme of the book puts us there. And then it closes, it comes back into historical narrative again in chapter 42. So what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of dive into it. And what we're going to do is we're going to, though we're reading it this way, as with any other book of the Bible, we want our understanding of the whole of Scripture and especially our understanding of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ to be what informs us in our reading. Because if you guys remember, we've talked about this a lot. After the resurrection, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, is walking with these disciples, and they don't recognize who he is, and they're all down, and they're all upset, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, man, have you been living in a cave for the last few days? Don't you understand what happened? And they tell him the story about Jesus and what had happened, not knowing they're talking to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? It says, he opened up the scriptures to them, Moses, the law, and the prophets, to teach them how everything was about him. So everything in the book of Job, though it's a narrative about a specific guy, though it's a narrative about a specific story, specific experiences, all of it is in the canon of Scripture because it's part of one continuing story that is all ultimately about Jesus. So we're not just reading some old story. We're reading it through the lens of our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is. Does that make sense? So with those things in mind, we dive into the book of Job, and there's this just really incredible narrative that just starts off right away. There's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right away, 
we get this declarative statement that's really, really important as we read this book. And it says right away, hey, by the way, this guy Job was blameless and he was upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. Now, you can't go too far with it. It doesn't mean he was perfect and sinless, as we will see. But he's a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. He's a believer. He's someone who understands who God is, who has a relationship with God. He seeks God. He has respect and fear and awe for God. He, as the book of John might put it, he, he chooses to walk in the light, not walk in darkness. He's, he's a, you would say he's a good, godly man is who he is. Um, when it says blameless, it means he's genuine. It means the, the Job on the inside is also the Job on the outside. The guy everyone looked at, the stuff that they saw him do were reflective of the reality of what was going on in his heart. He was genuine. And the other thing, when it says he's upright, it means he was fair. He was respectable. You might say um, above reproach, as they put it in the New Testament with regard to elders and deacons. Th this idea, he's, just a, he's a God-fearing man. And this is really important. It actually is said that way three times in the first two chapters on purpose because if that wasn't there, we would read the rest of the book of Job just like I was praying for my daughter when I saw her come out and have those difficulties. We would go, well, what did he do to deserve it? He must have done something. He must have been a bad guy because no one goes through this for no reason. And so God takes that, um, that ability away from us right out the gate. He was an upright man. He was a respectable man. He was a God-fearing man. He, was, he eschewed evil and chose righteousness. This is who Job is. And he's not just a righteous man. He's a wealthy and uh, you might say important man. It says in verse 2, They were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female doggies, donkeys, not doggies, and very many, dog guys, sorry, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Hashtag big deal. That's who this is, big deal. And his sons would go up and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning, and this is interesting, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is interesting, because when does this story take place? There's no temple yet. There's no tabernacle yet. There's no prescription for sacrifice to make amends for sin. And yet Job has this sort of instinctual, whether it's through just his relationship with God, we don't really know where it came from, but Job seems to have this, this knowledge already that's come from somewhere that to deal with sin, sacrifice has to take place. It's one way that we can say that he's not a sinless man, for sure. He seems to already know this is in place, and he's making these sacrifices on behalf of his children. So what does it show? It shows an understanding of righteousness. It shows an understanding of sacrifice and atonement. And it also shows a very deep love for his children, which is important. This man genuinely loves his children, and he's getting up and laying these sacrifices out before them. And it says in verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan among them. And this is where it gets interesting. It's also where we could get really weird. 
So the idea, sons of God, right away, for some of you, that causes a little bit of a question. What do you mean sons, plural? Because when we say son of God, who are we talking about? Out loud, who are we talking about? Jesus. But now we're saying sons of God. Who are we talking about here? Did God have multiple sons? Was there, were there brothers? What's going on here? And so a lot of people get tripped up with this, and it can go into some weird areas. So let me, let me help you with some of the original language here. When the phrase sons of God in this setting comes up here, uh, another way of translating that would be derivative of God. In other words, these are beings that were created by God. They are not capital G gods. They are not on in any way on an equal playing field with God whatsoever. They are subjects of God. They are created by God. And they come to this place, this sort of council that takes place before God. Think like huge cabinet meeting or something like that where they come before God and they're presenting themselves to God, as well as this one, Satan, which is actually Satan, is the way it's actually pronounced in the original language. So we go, what in the world is going on here? What kind of counsel is happening? Why is Satan in front of God? Why doesn't God just squish him right there on the spot and save us all a whole bunch of hassle? Like, what in the world is going on? You had him right there? Just arrest him. Do something, Right. Well, this actually takes place in 1 Kings 22, which is a much more difficult text, to be honest, I believe. Psalm 82 and Psalm 89, the texts speak about this sort of counsel that takes place before God. Now, I, I listened to a, a guy talking about this this morning who's way smarter than me, and I may totally botch translating this, but this is the way he put it. He said, we tend to have this sort of belief that there is this God in heaven who calls all the shots and rules over everything, and everything sort of just goes according to plan. He said, but that's, that's actually not exactly the way the world is ordered according to Scripture. That yes, there's this God in heaven with all the power who calls all the shots, but, but his rule of the earth is much more complicated than this one being who's over everything. But that God has these, in this case, sons of gods. We would translate it maybe better, angels. These supernatural beings that are created by him that are sort of his viceroys. They're sort of his agents, and it is through them that God chooses to actually uh, uh, enact his rule over all the earth. And in some cases, we see that angels are fallen. We see some that are wicked and evil that have rebelled against God, and we see others that are very honoring of God, the angels such as Gabriel and others that we're familiar with through Scripture. But that in all of them, God is sovereign. He's not equal with them, hoping it works out. That even in the angels who would rebel against God, he's sovereign over them and is able to even, um, you, you might say, channel the things that they do to make sure that his purposes and his plans all still come to fruition regardless. And throughout scripture, we see it all the time. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for or used for good. So we see this kind of play out. Now, don't go into polytheism here where there's all sorts of gods and then this one God just happens to be a little bit stronger than the rest of them, so he rules. That's not the case. There is one creator God, our God, Yahweh, three in one, who has created all things, and these are created beings, which is why the text refers to them as sons of God. And you can even, if you want to study this further, um, it even talks about in some of the ancient writings this belief that God takes these angels, these beings, and that they're, they're almost literally like in charge of specific areas. Like this is this one's domain, and this one's this one's domain. And you see these battles for actual land between God's angels and Satan's demons, these fallen angels. 
Um, Daniel chapter 10 talks about that, how some angels that are sent to do something on behalf of Daniel and his prayers, God sends them, but the prince of Persia comes against them. It seems to be a, a demon that has a, uh, uh, um, what's the word, kind of dominion over a specific area. And so this battle takes place between them. And you read in Ephesians where it talks about principalities and powers that we're at war with. Like this stuff's real. And it would seem, according to these, these writings, it would seem that there are times when, in the same way that if you were CEO of a company or president of the United States, and you've got your cabinet, and you're in charge of this, 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 that at times, the cabinet's coming together, and you're having this cabinet meeting, and they're reporting to you. Not that God needs their input, but there's this, this choosing, in the same way that we have the opportunity to partner with God in different works within the kingdom of God now, that there's this, this sort of privilege that God gives for them to be able to enact his rule and his power over the earth. And so this council comes again. Now, what does that look like? How does that all play off? This is another one of those things you go, this is really interesting. Might be really fun to sit maybe in a classroom setting or something like that and speculate. But in reality, we don't really know. It's kind of a mystery. It's pretty cool to read about, but it's kind of a mystery. And, and then Satan's here? But apparently he is. Satan appears and, and God addresses him in verse 7 and says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan, he gives this sort of teenager that's been in trouble and doesn't want to admit to it answer. Satan says, oh, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and for from the earth and from walking up and down on it. In other words, ah, oh, just around. <laughs> Satan, what have you been doing? Why are you home late? Oh, I, was just, I was just doing stuff. I was just out. Like he gives this kind of weird, vague answers. But as you read through the text, here's what seems to be happening. Satan seems to be, and by the way, this is a title. It's not his actual name. This is a title. It means the accuser. And Satan seems to be on this mission, maybe even ordained by God, it would seem from the interactions, maybe, seems to be on this mission to go through the earth, roaming here and there. And, and it's almost as if he's analyzing and searching these people who claim to be followers of God to prove they're not really followers of God. They're not, they're not genuine. They're not real. Because in this really odd, uncomfortable way. Look what God does next in verse 8. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, how many of you, just out of curiosity, you know where the story for Job's going to go from here on out? Raise your hand. Okay. Now think about this. God brings him up. That's disturbing. Can we be honest about that for just a minute? Imagine it was you. You're a righteous person who fears God. You're trying to do the right thing. You're just trying to go through life honoring God. Unbeknownst to you, God has an interaction with Satan and goes, have you seen that guy? Like, wouldn't you want to be like, mm -hmm. like no. but God seems to offer him up. Like God brings him up. That's not easy to deal with. But there seems to be this interaction going on. I've been wandering around. Okay, well, you've been wandering. You've been watching all these people. What do you think about Job? Well, apparently Satan has seen Job. Satan has taken interest in Job and has looked into him because Satan answers the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all he has on every side? Now, you guys know I love prosperity theology. You guys know that, right? <laughs> Hashtag massive sarcasm, right? 
Read what Satan's saying. He's describing prosperity theology to point out why Job's not a genuine Christian, you would say. That alone should be reason enough for us to go something right here. So look what Job says, he, or Satan says. Does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went from the presence of the Lord. So he literally calls him out like, of course he's following you, God. You give him everything he wants. Of course he is. Oh, he's following you? Well, yeah, who wouldn't follow you if they got this and this and this and this? And you've protected him. Of course he loves you. But take that away. Let's see if it's real. That's his challenge. And so God says, okay, I'll, re I'll remove that hedge of protection around him. The only thing you can't, you can't touch him. And the idea is here, if he loses all of these things, will he still glorify me? Will he still worship me? Hence the, you can't just kill Job. So this is, this is kind of the bet, if you will. This is the challenge, is a better way of saying it, that's taking place here. So Satan's like, deal. So he hops out, verse 13. And now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. There's this terrorist attack and all of his servants get killed. Verse 16, and while he was yet speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wave after wave. And while he was yet speaking, there came another. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And the four corners of the, or excuse me, the wilderness Let's try that again. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So everything's falling apart now. These children he loved, all of this stuff. And just think of it. It's not like it even came at once. It's like wave one comes, and he's not even done processing that, and more bad news comes. And it's, just, it's not only is this bad news coming all, right on top of one another, but it's getting worse every step of the way. It's as bad as it could get. And so what's the response? Does he still honor God? Does he still follow God? Or as Satan says, he's going to curse him. Verse 21, or verse 20, Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's amazing. He's genuine. The difficulty is proven. His faith. He's mourning. He's grieving. He's upset. Do not read cheesy Christian. Oh, well, Jesus is in control. I'll be fine. Let's just sing. Great is the Lord. Like, that's not Job. He's broken and grieving and weeping. But his faith is true. And he won't curse God. And he's trusting God. 
Well, so Satan went away and left them alone, because that's how it works for us, right? No. And then there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and, for on, or to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There's a tough sentence that we don't have time for. Verse 4. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. He's going, okay, okay, he made it, but... You know, that's all stuff that happened to someone else. He still had his health. Of course he hung around. But now, touch him. The one thing God withheld. Touch him. Cause him to hurt. You'll see. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Notice it's not something like a broken arm. It's something more like continual torment and suffering, cannot find comfort, cannot even walk without being in pain. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's already tapped out. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Another difficult sentence. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So we have this incredible faithfulness. Now, if that's where the story stopped, I would hate the book of Job. If it stopped right there, I would read this book as being something completely unattainable for me. Like this guy lost everything, told his wife to shut up with her complaining and kept worshiping God. He didn't even, doesn't even seem like he broke a tear. Like he's just fine with it. No questions at all. Not one moment of, oh, come on. Like none of that. Man, I can't be Job. But that's not where the book goes. In perhaps one of the darkest chapters in all the Bible, this lament happens in chapter three. And Job begins to speak. And he begins to address everything that's kind of been going on. And his summary to all this, I'll just read parts of it because we really don't have time to do all this tonight. We're only in chapter three and there's like 50 of them. So we got to go on. He says, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that, be, let that day be my darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. In other words, this. Why was I even born? What's the point of this? I wish I had never even been born. Not questioning God, but lamenting, broken, struggling, hurting, going, I would rather be dead or never existed at all than to have to go through these things. When I read this, I'm like, okay, me and Job got a little bit closer. There... Can I just tell you guys, like, 
somewhere along the line, we hit this place in Western Christianity where we started feeling like we have to pretend that nothing bad ever hurts us, that we just float above pain and suffering because we felt like if we weep or if we show difficulty or any of those kind of things, we've now somehow invalidated God. And, and we have to act like we've got everything just smiles and cheery. As long as we have Jesus, we're fine. We can't show pain because if we do that, it somehow cheapens God. Cheapens, shall I say, the God who in the garden before going to the cross sweat drops of blood and wept and said, if there's any other way, please don't make me go through this. But somehow we ended up in this Western cheesy Christianity version that was like, we can't act sad. We can't say we have questions. We have to pretend we're just floating above it. And when we did that for a significant number of people going through our culture at that time, we completely made ourselves un, uh, unrelatable. Because life is hard. Life is hard. Babies die. And the fact that a Christian could just float above that and go, oh, well, we have Jesus. Like, can I just say, it breaks Jesus' heart that babies die. It breaks God's heart that we go through difficulty. Read the story of Lazarus. Jesus in front of the tomb with his dear friend in the tomb rotting and all the weeping and mourning going on all around him. He's hurting as he sees these things happen. And we get to the book of Job, and elsewhere in Scripture, you see laments throughout. Read Jeremiah. Read the, and we have a whole book called Lamentations, which is about this. The idea that we can't weep and mourn through difficulty is not biblical. The Bible's really clear about the fact we live in a broken world, and it's going to be hard. We're going to have trouble. And all, all through the Psalms, you see places where David, a man after God's own heart, is going, what in the world? Help me. Where were you, God? Things of that nature. And so as dark as this is, it's beautiful for us. Not, not just beautiful to help understand that God could give credence to these words, if you will, by even inspiring the very fact that they were written, but it helps us understand and it gives us a little bit of freedom for our emotions to be human and to experience brokenness. It's a beautiful thing, actually. Where we go with it can get dark. But these are God-given emotions. We should weep at the brokenness of this world, especially when these things happen. Verse 11, why didn't I die at birth? Why didn't I come out of the womb and expire? Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it does not come? It is a dark, depressing thing. If you found this in your children's journal, you would be taking them to a counselor for suicidal thoughts. That's how dark this is. And so what happens? Well, we skipped over this a little bit, but at the end of chapter 2, Job has three buddies that come on the scene and come around him. Verse 11, it says, His three friends heard that evil had come upon him, and it's Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. I've got to get better at speaking Hebrew and Greek. But anyway, they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. Oh, that's awesome, right? Nice guys. Come comfort him. We like that, right? I'm not setting you up. You can say that. It's okay. But when they get there and they see the extent of what's going on, it changes. Because take a look. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. 
And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You know what you would call this? Awake. This is awake. In the same way that Job, when he sees his family dies, ripping his clothes and putting ashes, they see this. They're coming to comfort him. They see that it's so bad, they're just like, I mean, he's, he's dead. He's as good as dead. And they just sit there for seven days. Not a word is said. Well, it doesn't last. <laughs> I guess day eight, they begin to get some ideas. And so what happens now in the longest section of the book of Job, and now is where we're going to skip a whole bunch of stuff in case you're getting paranoid, um, is this sort of cycle where, where Job laments and then one of his buddies comes in and sort of gives a response. Uh, and what he's trying to do is make sense of everything that's happened and giving their, their, their guy who's, who's struggling, their friend, um, some sort of instruction, some sort of help, like, hey, here's what you need to do. And then Job will respond, and then the next guy comes in, and then Job responds, and the next guy comes in, and you see this cycle that kind of goes on and on through this. And in this, there's some, real, um, there's some similarities that happen over and over and over um, in each one of them. Each person that comes in carries the same presuppositions, and to, a, uh, to some extent, they're the same presuppositions that Job has even as he's lamenting in chapter 3, and it's the same presuppositions we know we're not supposed to have but we often have. And it's this. They first come in and they say this. They, they believe that, that God is sovereign, which we agree with. God is sovereign. It means God is in control. That means God rules over all the earth. We agree with that. Amen? That's good. Wow. I got you guys down with the dark talk, right? I mean, we agree with that. Amen? Okay, thank you. And then now the second thing is this, that God is just, that he's fair. That, that God does what is right. That God is good, just, does what is right. Would we agree with that? Yes, we would agree with that. But here's where they start to get a little sideways, and, and we can do this too. The, the third presupposition that they always have as they're going into it is this, that God punishes the wicked, which is not necessarily bad, but the implications that they're carrying out of this that you'll see as they go through their discussions with Job is that there's no such thing as undeserved suffering. This is what they're saying. Not that just God punishes wicked in general, but in that presupposition, they're saying to Job that you are suffering because you're being punished. Therefore, you must be or have done something wicked. So they're coming with that same presupposition that I was acting out of in that moment as I watched my daughter struggle. It must be my fault. God's punishing me. I've done something wrong. I must repent. That's what they're coming with. And, and do we believe that as Christians? How do you believe in the gospel if you don't believe in undeserved suffering? Because otherwise you're saying Jesus deserved suffering. So there's a problem there, right? And then the fourth presupposition is this. God rewards the just. Sounds right, right? Yeah, you guys are so, like, you're either afraid to answer because you think I'm setting you up. Like, it does sound right. God rewards the just, correct? But if that's your hardcore presupposition for all the different events that come that way, you know what that actually plays out into? There's no such thing as grace. What happens, you deserved. If it's good, you earned it. If it's bad, you deserved it. 
And these are the presuppositions that these guys carry in, which the go- fly right in the face of the gospel. So we have to hustle as we read through some of these. Um, and we see this idea. And you see this, by the way, it goes all the way through Israel's history. It goes into Jesus' time. Remember the story of the blind man? They said, hey, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that caused him to be blind? The idea that something bad happened to them, therefore he's blind as punishment. And you don't have to talk to too many people about God or Christianity to hear that word punishment come up over and over and over and over, Um, which for someone who is an understander in the gospel or uh, understander of the gospel and who is covered by the gospel, it takes away the reality that the Bible teaches us that the cup of God's wrath, his punishment towards sin was drank in absolute totality by who? Jesus. So for the, for the Christian, is God punishing the unjust? No, the punishment went to Christ, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. So, so there's this cycle. These guys come in, and they're coming in with those presuppositions. What they're basically saying is, you did something to deserve this, Job. You earned this. And they kind of go through, this is what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to, whatever the case may be. And then Job's response in them is always kind of the same. He's adamant about the fact that he did not sin, that he doesn't deserve this. So for an example, look at Job chapter 18. We have this guy named Bildad. And Bildad comes up to Job. It's his turn to talk. And he says, how long will you hunt for words? In other words, Job, just say it. That's what he's saying. How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Why aren't you listening to us, Job? He's saying, you who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light of the wicked has been put out. This light of God's blessing upon you has been extinguished. Why? Because you've done something wicked, Job. Why are you not listening to us? Why are you not taking our advice? Just say it. That's what's going on. You're being punished, Job. And he goes on and on. He talks about what happens to the wicked, and it's dark. His strong steps are shortened. His own schemes throw him down. He is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. There's some interesting symbology, symbolism. There we go. Public schools. Symbolism and this idea of the heel, but we'll get to that. This, all this, he goes on and on, and he's talking about the wicked man, and he's describing Job. He's describing Job as, hey, all these things that are happening to you are things that happen to wicked people, because this is what God does to the wicked. And so what's Job's response? Chapter 19, Job replies. Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Look at verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call to help, and there's no justice. What is he saying? I didn't do anything to deserve this. There's not some hidden sin somewhere that I've not atoned for that now God is coming and saying, because of this, I'm punishing you. That's what they're saying. He's going... This is not the case. This has not happened here. That is not what's going on. And there's this continual pushing. Now, Job is adamant that he has not sinned to deserve this. But is Job sinless? Well, in this, there are some things he does, or there are some things he says that he absolutely shouldn't say. 
There's times going through here, chapter 9, verse 22, for example, when Job is talking about this, he's giving his response. He said, it is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Is that true? I'll tell you this, when anyone's quoting Job, before you give a thumbs up or thumbs down to it, make sure you go back to the book and find out who actually said it. Because there are a lot of things in the book of Job that people are saying that are absolutely erroneous about God. And this is one of them. That, hey, God does what he wants and he just mocks you as you lay there in misery. That's not true about God. That's not God's heart. So Job, Job is not in sin and that's why he's going through the difficulty. But in his processing of the difficulty, Job does sin. Job does say some things that he's not to do. He says God destroys the blameless. He says in verse 23 that God mocks their despair. But notice back in chapter 9 again, notice what he actually says here in 9 verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. Talking about God. This is Job talking about God. He says all these things. He's wrestling with all this emotion. He's asking all these questions. He's saying some things that are wrong. But then he says, but God is not as a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together, for there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. That's interesting. Though he's got questions, he respects and understands the righteousness and holiness of God, and he knows, even though he's wrestling with these questions, I can't stand in front of God and actually say these things. He seems to have this instinctual understanding that I need an arbiter. I need somebody between me and him because if I was just to go to God with this, it probably wouldn't go well for me. And then even more in chapter 19, the one that we were looking at before. Take a look at verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And my heart faints within me. And if you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. What is he saying here? He's saying, no matter what, I know the day is coming when I'm going to stand in front of him. But he has this confidence in God. He's my redeemer. Now, I don't believe that Job has this instinctual knowledge specifically about the person of Jesus Christ. I believe this is in the same way the scriptures talk about Jesus, who, though in the face of accusations, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So what what is Job saying here? He's saying, I still have faith in God. I still believe that God is good, and I believe that God will vindicate me. I've not deserved this. God is one day going to vindicate me. And he's terrified of the notion of standing before him, but he knows God's going to come through. He knows God's going to vindicate him, which is really, really interesting. It seems to foreshadow Jesus in some degree, this belief that God will vindicate him because he's not suffering in sin. In the same way, the accusations that came at Jesus, and he answered them not, but entrusted them to God, the one who judges rightly. And so you see this sort of picture of Jesus, or at least this allusion to this Christology here in the text. And then you get all the way to chapter 29. In Job chapter 29, 
And you see Job's sort of closing argument, if you will, about his summary, his defense, as he's kind of going again. These, these three guys have been going round and round and round with all their advice, and, and Job comes in with this sort of closing argument and just lays all this stuff. He describes his life before the sin and suffering and how he was this man who sought after God, and he describes all this, and then he goes all the way in to chapter 31, and in his final appeal, he basically says this. I mean, look, guys, I understand if I had done this, this, and this, I would deserve what I'm going through. And if I had done this, this, and this, I would deserve what I'm going through. And if I had done this, I would deserve it. But what is his stance all the way along? He's adamant. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And there's this longing in him. I wish God would just speak on my behalf. This begging of God to show himself and vindicate him because not only is he suffering with all this loss, but even his friends, now they're doubting his righteousness and that he even loves God. Like he's struggling right now. And then this dude comes on the scene and he's different than the rest of the people that have spoken. His name's Elihu, which is weird because it's a Hebrew name. But we don't see, again, any allusions or pointing to the people of Israel. He's just clearly a different guy. And he's given these speeches before Job in the same way the other guys were, but these aren't responded to. And these aren't challenges. And the thing or aren't challenged. His speeches aren't challenged. And, and it seems as if the thing that he says is upheld and just kind of hangs there as truth. They're not rebutted. And we don't have time to go through and read all of them. We're already rapidly run out of time. But he rebukes the three friends there, and he addresses them. And what is his overall point? God is just, and God is good, and you can trust him. He's just, he's sovereign, he's good, he's powerful, and you can trust him. And in each of them, it, it, it kind of is almost like this, this idea. It's like a precursor to what happens next. Because what happens next is truly the most terrifying and most amazing, most incredible thing um, maybe that you read in the entire Old Testament because God shows up. And Job has for so long this whole time been, I wish he would just show up. I know my Redeemer's coming. I know that he's going to vindicate me. And so he's almost demanding that God show up and stand up for him because he doesn't deserve this. And let me ask you, does he? Now, don't go uber spiritual. Well, we all deserve nothing but judgment. I mean, specifically, in this narrative, has he done anything in particular that God looked at and said, as a result of that, I'm going to strike him down with these things? Does he deserve it? No. The Bible, God actually esteems his righteousness and allows these things to happen to him through the hand of the accuser and through Satan. So Job's waiting on this, and God shows up and does not vindicate Job in any way whatsoever for a while. His answer is actually, hey, righteous guy that's been waiting on me, who do you think you are? It's a really hard, terrifying response. Now, for us, sitting on the outside reading this, it's super funny. Like as we read this stuff, because we can picture it, and God shows up on the scene. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. And you can see it. It's like all these questions have been going towards God, and God shows up and goes, Who's running their mouth and has no idea what they're talking about? You, you better put your big boy pants on. I got some questions for you. You wearing a cup? You might want to. Like that's literally what he's saying here. 
He, there's this, I've had it. It's almost like, you know, those movies that get the speeches that get us all fired up. You can't handle the truth. It's that kind of moment that happens here. And it's awesome to read unless it's happening to you. But if you're Job, worst day ever. And so he says to him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched its line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed for it limits and set bars and doors? And I said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Speaking about creation and when he created the oceans and who's the one that told the ocean here and no further. Like all these things, like where were you? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused this, the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken? And out of the whole thing, as all of this happened, you just see Job doing this, smaller and smaller and smaller, and oh, please let this end. Like you can see this happening. And it's this constant like hammering. Do you understand the scope of me? You think you know everything? You, Job, you've got this one little window of your life. Let's step back. Have you considered the ocean? Have you considered the stars? And he even takes it when you look at the animals and the things that he mentions. He reaches into wildness, you might say. He talks about like wild donkeys or mountain goats, not farm goats. It's almost as like, like Job, you've had your little world that's been under your control for so long and you have no idea what's under my hands. You have no idea what I'm in control of. You have no idea. The chaos even mentions animals like the behemoth and the leviathan, which in those ancient cultures were considered animals that represented chaos and danger. And he's like, I control them. He's like bragging about them. Like, I created them and I control them. And you just got your little world. You have no idea, Job. And there's this idea, as we might imagine, if we were Job in that moment, that we would absolutely want to kind of shrink back without question. We would want to kind of shy away and, and get this to, to just stop. Like, okay, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Job begins to sort of repent about it. And, and then Job answers in verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And you think it's over, but look. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Like he won't even let him off the hook. Job's like, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said it. No, 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 no. Put your cup on. I'm not done with you. Let's talk. Like there's this incredible, massive powerful speech that gives this window and insight into the absolute massive dimension of God. And in chapter 40, there's the Bruce Almighty story. In chapter 40, God's like, you think it's easy to rule? You think being sovereignty, you think you can do better judgments than me? Why don't you try this, Job? You think you can handle wicked? You think you can defeat the enemy? You think you can do all these things? And Job is put in his place to a degree that no one in the history of the world has ever been put in their place before, ever. Like rap battles where they're like trying to chew each other out and cut them or, or insult jokes when you were a kid. Nothing compared to what Job goes through right here before God. And so Job is kind of, he's humbled. And in chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and said, 
I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, he's not repenting for sin that causes suffering. He's repenting for even his own sin, the things he said about God, the things he thought about God, the questions he presumed against God during that time. That's what his repentance is about. And it's amazing. And the Lord rebukes his friends, which I'm sure was just as entertaining. And then chapter 42, verse 10. And so the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And now he had, and look, it's all double. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jeremiah and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons in four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. It ended well. What the heck, though, right? <laughs> like, right? I mean, you gotta, come on. It's just like all this happens and God comes in and never, that we know of, explains to Job why. And then everything's doubled. And he gets everything back and everything's fine. <laughs> well, the purpose of our series, and we have to finish now, the purpose of this series is so that we would understand and that we can read and study the Bible for ourselves. And the book of Job has a lot of things that I don't care how brilliant you are as a scholar, it's going to be really hard to understand that everything that happens in that. I mean, the whole point in a certain sense is, right, you don't understand. Isn't that sort of the point? Who is it that asks all these questions and has no idea what they're talking about? So what do we do with this? How do we deal with all that? Well, if the idea of all Scripture is to see Jesus, then how do we see Jesus in this story? Well, first of all, I would offer this to you. This is one of the most intense descriptions of suffering in all the Bible, with the exception of the cross. Every time you see suffering described, that chapter 18, when Bildad's talking about all the stuff that God has done to Job, and he's describing how, how God treats the wicked, he's describing separation from God, what we would even refer to as hell. He's saying, Job, this is how God treats the wicked. And you know what? He's right, because that's a description of what Christ went through on our behalf. Anytime you see suffering in the book of Job, you can instantly see Christ in it and understand, wait, Christ was the one who suffered, who was blameless, who was perfectly righteous, who suffered and paid the penalty for sins that were not his, who endured the wrath of God that had nothing to do with anything that he had done. When you read the book of Job and you see the suffering of Job, it's pointing to a much greater suffering to come, one who suffered on our behalf. So God's dealings with Job actually foreshadow God's dealings with Jesus on our behalf one day. Boy, that'll make you read the book a little different. And you start reading some of that stuff. 
We see the sovereignty of God. We see that even all of Satan's malice is used by God to accomplish his purposes. Um, this idea that this counsel, that these angels fallen or otherwise, that in every case God is sovereign over them all. They can do nothing apart from God's will or God's permission, that God is in control over all of them. And we see the goodness of God in restoration, that he restored to Job. The problem is, is we get the timing sort of messed up. So we read this story and we want to go, we want to go to someone who's suffering. We want to go to our brother Craig as his wife's in the hospital. And we want to go to Stephanie as she was laying there last night. I should tell you guys, I had a conversation with Stephanie last night. It was awesome. And I was talking to her about tonight and I told her I was teaching on Job. And she goes, Job ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> That's what she actually said. But we would love to look at Stephanie and go, God's going to restore this to you. And we can say that, but what we tend to want it to mean is any day now. God's going to restore. It's really hard right now, but there's a reward waiting on the other side. Of it. And this is what prosperity theologians will say. That, hey, just have faith and God's going to bless you with this and this and this and this and all this. Well, it's a partial truth. Uh, part of the problem with prosperity theology is it's an over-realized eschatology. In other words... Something God has promised in eternity, they're trying to bring into the now and claim it now. And so what do I mean by that? Where does that come from? James 5, verse 7 through 11 says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? Well, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. And behold, the judge is standing at the door, meaning he's coming. And listen to what he says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who, excuse me, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so James even says, hey, be steadfast. Hang in there. God will restore you. God will reward you. But it may not happen until eternity. And we would be really misled to claim it. Because here's the idea, and we're done. Christians must believe in undeserved suffering. If you don't believe in undeserved suffering, you can't believe in the gospel. Because that's what the gospel is all about, that Jesus experienced undeserved suffering. We must believe in undeserved suffering. The problem is we are still way too surprised by hard times. Like they surprise us. Even though uh, books of the Bible, like 1 Peter teaches us like, hey, don't be surprised as if something weird is happening to you. Don't be taken by surprise when hard times come. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Difficulty is absolutely going to come. We believe in the sufferings of Christ, but we hate that part about taking up our own cross and following him, don't we? We want to move right to heaven. That is an over-realized eschatology. There is rest coming. There is reward coming. There is paradise coming. But until that day, we're in a fallen world where, praise God, God works through sinners to accomplish his purposes, or we would be in trouble. So suffering, we need to embrace it as following the example of our King and our Lord. And, and I read a quote today. A guy said, man, way too often we go to bed at the end of the night and we go, man, today was hard. He goes, we should actually on good days go to bed going, that was weird. Today was easy. But this is the reality of what life should look like. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Why? Ezra, Nehemiah, 
Esther, all of these books should have been amazing, and they all ended with, uh, why? Because they're all pointing forward to something better. And man, if this is all we have, that we want to name and claim perfection now, when our women's ministry leaders dropping dead literally in the hallway, when babies are dying, when all the things that we read about are happening in the world around, who wants to point to this? Like the purpose of our lives, just like these books of the scripture are, even in the difficulty, be patient. He's coming. There's one that's coming. And even in the difficulties. And then in the last thing, too, is just to remember this. First Peter says, blessed be, the fa- or, excuse me, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the reward. It's coming, and it's real. That's not made up. But listen, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to reveal it in the last time. What does it mean? That stuff's coming. God's protecting it. Nothing's going to happen to your reward. It's coming. But, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Let's just put it this way, guys. Anybody would follow Jesus if it meant everything works out perfectly afterwards. Anybody would follow Jesus. They wouldn't follow Jesus for Jesus. They would follow Jesus for the perfect stuff that comes as a result. And that's not the idea. Like even in this, though, God wants us to want the rewards. God wants us to desire the rewards. But that's not the thing we follow and chase. We're chasing Jesus. We're following Jesus. And he is even our reward. So that when we even go through difficulty here, we are exemplifying to all the world around us that Jesus is more valuable to us than anything else that we could possibly have. And that's what makes God look glorious. That's what makes God look valuable. Not you get stuff. Man, anyone would want that. But that doesn't set Jesus apart. And so Peter even tells us, hey, when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, yes, they're hard. Yes, they're difficult. They're going to hurt. I don't think Peter was super excited about being crucified on behalf of Jesus. But it proved his faith because he would not recant because he believed Jesus and his faith in Jesus was more valuable even than his own flesh in those moments. And that's what we're called to do. So don't shy away from suffering. Like embrace it, knowing that, man, this is an opportunity for the world to see that my faith in God is real. That it's being tested, yes. And tests are hard. We don't like them. But God is good. And we will trust God. And when we come out the other side of this, there's going to be a testimony to share. Amen? And that's the book of Job. Will you stand and pray with me? And do me a favor, when you go pick up your kids, please tell Pastor Brent that I finished at 745, but you just wanted to chat for a little while, okay? God, thank you for this opportunity to open up this book. It's such an incredible book. There's so many more things we could have talked about, and there's so many things that are difficult and challenging to us, but we do know this. You are sovereign. You are just. That you suffered for us, and that you bless us because of Jesus. And to that we hold and cling. 
May that be the prize that we demand in life now. May that be our goal. May we live for you, Jesus, and for your gospel. And if everything else that we have should fall away, if God forbid we become a Job here on earth, may our testimony be the same, that we held on to you. Just like Job, Lord, who, though he had questions, though he had difficulty, he kept wrestling with you, and he never turned from you. May that be the case with us as well. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your testimony in our lives, and we thank you that you didn't turn from us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning.